Our reading is in Romans chapter 8 this morning, and we are coming to the end of the chapter. We'll read from verse 31 through to 39. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord, and we give thanks to him for it this morning. Let us pray together as we come to God's word. Lord God, as we come before you this morning, and we do wait, Lord, in the expectation that you will speak through your word, Lord, we ask that you would give us strength, that you would equip us so that we are ready to face whatever this week will hold for us, and do so honoring you in everything we say and do and think. Lord, we thank you for your great goodness to us, and ask that you would bless us now as we gather before your word. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. As you face each day, where does your confidence come from? It was something that I uh, was considering recently. I had read uh, an article about Bertrand Russell, who was a mathematician and to a certain degree a philosopher from the earlier half of the last century. And Bertrand Russell spent a great deal of his time and a great many pages setting out to prove that one plus one equals two. He spent 360 pages of one of his biggest works proving this so that he could be confident each and every day. Now, that might seem a little bit strange to say that we must know that one plus one equals two in order to face each day with confidence, but for a mathematician, it is quite important that one plus one equals two. We've based quite a lot of our life on maths working in engineering and in economics and science and so on, and if one plus one didn't equal two, then we're in all sorts of trouble. And Bertrand Russell was responding to not a crisis, but to a significant problem that he had created in the field of mathematics. We're not going to go into what that problem is, but he had posed this problem that threatened to undermine the very essence of maths. We could have no confidence in mathematics at all. And as I've said, that's a bit of a problem for us in the 21st century. So he spent the time writing 360 pages to prove the fundamental principle, if you like, first principle of mathematics, that one plus one equals two. And he did so. You'll be happy to know that one plus one does equal two. Your car will still work. Planes won't drop out of the sky uh, and so on. 
Well, they might do, but it won't be the fault of mathematicians if they do. It's good to know these things. In some cases, for some people, Bertrand Russell perhaps included, it is essential to know these things. We must know that the framework that we live in is certain, is sure, that we can have confidence in the stuff around us. And it's exactly the same for Christians. We are expected to go through life not knowing what the next moment will bring. There have been times in your lives, and certainly in mine, where all of a sudden something happens and it changes almost everything. An experience, a comment made, something that happens uh, around you, and all of a sudden the day has taken an entirely different direction. And the problem we all have as humans, whether we're Christians or not, is how we face that uncertainty. There are some people who feel they simply cannot. They they can't face another day of not knowing what's going to happen, of of not knowing what terrible thing awaits them around the corner if they're pessimistically minded, and they just can't cope. Such people need significant psychological help, and, uh, and that should be given them. There are some people who just don't care. They'll just go through life, and what will be will be, and it doesn't matter. But the difficulty is that only lasts for so long. A conversation I had with... Uh, a, a guy not that much older than me, just a few years older than me, uh, a wee while back. And it was a very familiar conversation that I've had with many people. He said, after the last year, I just don't know what's coming next. He was a fairly carefree kind of guy, quite happy-go-lucky, you know, not in any way a sort of a pessimistic type. But he was struggling because there had been breakdown in the family. There had been medical problems in the wider family. He'd experienced medical problems. They were going through all sorts of difficulties on a personal level with other individuals, friends. Work wasn't going quite well. Just everything in his life was kind of disintegrating, and he just couldn't cope with that. And we'll all inevitably go through those times of life where you sit down and sigh and think, what's happening next? I just can't face another day of this sort of thing happening. What am I going to do? And Paul has been building this argument all the way through the book of Romans about where we have come from, about the circumstance of every human being on this planet, about the difficulty of that situation, about what sin does to you. Sin individualizes you, tears you away, not just from the people around you and makes you at a fundamental level, quite selfish, but it tears you away from God, the one who gives you direction and meaning and purpose and tells you not just who you are, but what you are and how you're to face life. It removes you from all of that, isolates you, and leaves you frightened, uncertain, insecure, lacking in confidence. And you might be able to blag it for a while, like I've said, and just be kind of happy-go-lucky and what will be will be, but there will come a day when that runs out, and on that day, what do you do? Well, Paul has put forward the sufficiency of Jesus to address the root problem and in the midst of all of this, which is sin. And now, as Romans 8 comes to an end, He begins to apply this to our lives to show the kind of effect that it should have on each one of us as a Christian people distinct from the rest of the world. We find elsewhere in Scripture statements like, um, you know, those in the world apart from God can have no confidence, or they uh, they can't face the world with any certainty, or they face the prospect of death, and it's a complete unknown mystery to them that causes them fear, however we are different. And this is how we are different. 
Paul says that as Christians, we face the uncertainty of life, and we do so not underestimating the freedom we have with Jesus. Because if we're honest, as Christians, we've all experienced fear and anxiety in the face of uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen to our loved ones, to our job, to our home, to uh, our lives, whatever it might be. And Paul reminds us that when we feel that fear, that anxiety, that doubt, we should reckon on the freedom we have with Jesus. Paul begins to outline some of the problems that we face in this life. And he says, what then shall we say to these things? He's begun to address them already in the chapter. We have a struggle with sin. We have a struggle with death as the great unknown that mankind faces that causes the most anxiety and fear. We've had struggles with Satan and the power of evil at work in the world that um, sort of positively works into our lives to lead us away from God. He's addressed these in the the preceding seven chapters in varying degrees of detail. And these things Paul has outlined exert control over us. So that the fear of death, for example, is worked out in our lives in all sorts of ways. We try and deny the aging process. And I know for a great many of us, we're about that work every single day in trying to make ourselves look better than we are when we drag ourselves out of bed in the morning. And part of that is an implicit denial that we're getting older, that we are facing an end, that our bodies break down and decay over time. We live with that constant fear, that worry, that little gnawing anxiety in our minds. We have a fear of sin because we know what sin does to us. It corrupts and it damages us and that tends to paralyze us. We don't want to go into new circumstances and new situations. We don't want to engage in this course of action because we're worried about what will come, what will it bring. So we're paralyzed. We are fearful of Satan and the powers of this world that, you know, not necessarily picturing in our mind some little satin-robed man with horns and a pitchfork, but, but we are fearful of the power of evil in this world. We're worried about what will happen to us if we go here or there. If we stand up for what we believe, what will the government or those in authority or even our neighbors and families say and do to us? We're fearful all the time. But Paul's argument is that while there might be some powerful foes ranged against us, and he doesn't make any bones about that, these are powerful things. There is none that can defeat you and take you away from Christ. Now Paul is saying this to a group of Christians who are beginning to go through trials and tribulations for their faith. They're only feeling the very beginnings of it. It's going to get orders of magnitude worse for them. And he's saying you should face the uncertainty of tomorrow, confident in the freedom that you have from Jesus, because what you want in this life is to be connected to him. And if you're connected to him and cannot be taken out of his presence, then what can you lose that is truly of value? There is no enemy that is more powerful than him. And and that's an astonishing thing when you consider the power of death the power of sin, the power of Satan. None of these things were able to defeat Jesus. Jesus overcame death. He died and was raised again. Jesus was able to defeat sin. That is what he died for. And when he died, sin's power was broken and he was raised again to new life as a proof that sin couldn't hold him in the grave. And in that, we remember from our studies in Genesis, he defeats Satan, who is 
employed exclusively in promoting sin in the world and seeing that as many people as possible indulge in sin and do not uh, turn to God. And we remember that Satan's head is crushed by the Savior, the seed of the woman that comes through Jesus himself. And if Jesus is able to defeat all of those enemies, and we are in Jesus, as we thought about last week, then what are we worried about? When I was in secondary school, I spent approximately six years, not quite the whole six years I was in secondary school, but a fair portion of that as a fairly fearful uh, young boy. This is the fate of uh, a young boy who's fairly short for his age in a secondary school like the one uh, that I went to. There were not just a sort of paranoid idea in my mind that there were people out to get me. There genuinely were people out to get me uh, all through the course of those six years. It wasn't entirely... Um, entirely their fault. In some cases, I'm sure I, I brought some of that upon myself. But, um, but going through six years of never knowing when the next problem was going to come around the corner, when the next uh, thing was going to be said publicly, the next action was going to be uh, performed, and I was going to be left humiliated was a wearing experience. Now, years on, if I go back into school as a chaplain or um, to, to meet with a head teacher or whatever else, you can see kids kind of looking at you and murmuring away in little groups and so on. And when I was in school, that would have been a sense, a source of real anxiety. But now, as an adult, you walk through the midst of all that, and well, if they're talking about you, they're talking about you. I don't, I don't care. What can they do to me? Nothing. Now, the fact that some of them are about six foot two suggests, well, maybe there are some things that they can do to me, but, but, but it's not a worry in the same way it was as a young man going through school. Because you've matured, you've grown, you've recognized what danger actually is, and that isn't it. Something's changed. And it might make us a bit uncomfortable, but the power of that thing has been limited over me. And it's one of those experiences that we have I suspect in this room had where you wish you could talk to your younger self and say you really don't need to be frightened of all of these things because they don't really matter. They feel like they're insurmountable problems, but they're not. And so it is that Paul is, in a sense, our older self speaking to us, saying you don't need to be fearful of these things. Their power is broken and they're not something that you need to be enthralled to, enslaved by. Something that you live your life every day in fear of. Christ has defeated these enemies. And so what can they do to you bar some temporary thing? We don't underestimate the freedom we have in Jesus. We don't underestimate the provision that we have with Jesus. Because it's not just that Jesus liberates us through his death. That he's gone through on our behalf. And then he draws us in so that we have the benefits of that death. Jesus actually provisions us so that we are equipped to go through life, not fearing and not enslaved to sin. Paul uses um, fairly basic reasoning. He says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? If he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, we might say, understandably, hang on a minute, I don't have all things. If I had all things, I'd live in a much bigger house with a much nicer car and a thicker carpet and a fridge full of the finest food and so on, and that's not what we know Paul is saying. Not that God gives you the desires of your heart because God knows the desires of your heart and knows that that wouldn't be in your best interest on any level whatsoever. 
but that what God gives us is everything that we need in order that we know Him and love Him and serve Him. Now, this only makes sense if we've read the previous seven chapters in Romans, because what Paul has said again and again and again in those seven chapters is that your life is not, first and foremost, all about you. It's first and foremost all about God. It's about His glory. It's about His place in the world. It's about us living for Him. We were created to glorify Him. And as long as we live in line with that principle, then our lives may not be easy, but they will be lived according to their purpose. We will be fulfilled and satisfied and blessed. And that's exactly where his reasoning has brought him here. We will be given everything to ensure that life happens. So Paul is able to be in chains with a back that is covered in welts and bruises and and sitting in the most difficult of circumstances with his friend who's in similar shape and sing praises to God, not because I'm just so happy that I've been beaten to within an inch of my life and who doesn't want to sit in a smelly prison with my feet in stocks, but because even in that circumstance, I'm glorifying God and that's all I want to do. I'll put up with anything if I get to do that. It's a humbling example for us to see and to seek to follow in, but in the end, this is the life we actually have with Jesus. That we can suffer the loss, Paul has said elsewhere, of all things for the surpassing worth of knowing God in Christ. What will God deny us? He wants us to go that way. Everything in God desires that we mature that we know him more, that we worship him, that we serve him, that we glorify him. That's why he made you. He didn't have to make you, did he? He could have made someone else. He could have given someone an entirely different personality. He could have given you different color hair and different colored eyes and have you born in an entirely different nation. He didn't need to make you the way he did, where he did, when he did, but he chose to. And he did so for his own glory. And so he will stint at nothing. To ensure that you walk in that way, that you grow in that life, that you become more holy, that you grow closer to Him. The challenge for us is to embrace that and to live in light of it. That will mean, as Paul's example shows, a life of sacrifice and sometimes a life of hardship. Not always, but sometimes. But it will mean that we always grow closer to God. That even as we endure suffering, that suffering is being used to drive us closer. C.S. Lewis talked about that, didn't he, in The Problem of Pain, when he reflected on the loss of his wife. Uh, C.S. Lewis got married late in life and I think had sort of given up hope of ever marrying anybody and yet met joy and experienced immeasurable joy in getting to marry this woman. And then she died, tragically, at an early age. And in response to this, C.S. Lewis spoke about that problem of pain and how can God be a God of love and yet I endure such suffering. And he uh, famously said that God so often whispers to us as we go through everyday life, but shouts at us in our pain. He speaks clearly. He uses our pain and suffering to cut through the fog of everyday life and have us hear his voice so that we might follow it. Uh, in the most dire of circumstances. This means that we draw on our suffering and our tribulation as much as, or perhaps more so than our times of plenty and joy. This also means that we have something positive to say to people in their time of suffering who don't know Christ. 
because we have gone through the same experience. We understand what it's like. Jesus understands what it's like. He's done it. He's lived it. And it doesn't make any sense. It is all for nothing if God is not at the center of your life. But if God is at the center of your life, then it is given focus and purpose. And that doesn't make it easy. Certainly doesn't make it easy to endure suffering. But it helps us to understand that God does love us and leads us always, even as we go through hard times. We reckon on the freedom we have with Jesus to face uncertain days. We reckon on the provision that we have with Jesus, even as we go through times of loss and lack and suffering. We reckon on the protection that we have with Jesus. And this is perhaps one of the hardest questions for us. Paul says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? This is one of the worries that we all have in various times in our life. It's called the, um, oh, another word's just gone right in my head, the, the imposter, thank you. I was going through a whole smorgasbord of words there, none of them were the right one, the imposter syndrome. That when you get a job, you've maybe left school or you've left university or wherever it might be, you get your first job. You, you start on your first day and you're just praying that nobody asks you anything or that, that nobody realizes you don't have a clue what you're doing or what you're talking about. And it's that idea that I've been brought on to do a job and I'm actually an imposter. I've got no clue. This is really a, a really famous problem amongst ministers um, that, that you get brought into circumstances and you have no idea how to deal with these circumstances and situations and you just hope that no one ever asks you to deal with it because you're not going to know what to do. It affects us all uh, to varying degree through life. And this is exactly because it is a mirror of this deeper problem. We all experience imposter syndrome when we become Christians because we hear the words that Jesus has died for your sins. And if you've cast yourself upon his mercy and asked for his forgiveness, you have been forgiven. You are being made holy. And yet we know the state of our own heart. We know we're not holy. We know we still struggle with sin. In some cases, we struggle with the same ongoing niggling sin for decades. And it causes all sorts of anxiety within us. I'm maybe not really a Christian at all. Maybe God hasn't loved me. Maybe God's not even there. Because if this is true, then surely I should be experiencing life in a different way. We feel like an imposter. Now, Paul doesn't deny the fact that we ought to be holy. Although he does recognize the fact that we're all a work in progress and we're not perfect the moment we were saved. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But we're not. But the problem we face because we know we're kind of imposters is that gnawing sense of doubt. And Paul addresses it by saying that there is somebody who levels charges against you all the time. Satan constantly seeks to accuse you, whispering in your ear, standing before God and saying, they're not the person that you claim they are. We see an example of this in the book of Job, don't we? We've got this holy man, this righteous man, and Satan says, yeah, but you know he's not really that holy. If we just take away his health, if we take away his wealth, if we take away his family, well, it's, it's because of those things that he glorifies you. It's not because he's a righteous man. So God says, fine, take it all away. Then see what happens. And come the end, Job's character is shown uh, to, to have gone through some real difficulty and questions God, but emerges out the other side recognizing the goodness of God even in his suffering. 
And so Paul says, who will bring any charge against God's elect? The only one who is able to condemn you in a court of law on the basis of your sin is God. But God's justified you. So who can condemn? Satan can say anything he wants to you. He can make you doubt yourself. He can make you doubt God's word. He can make you doubt the reality of God. But none of those things mean anything. They're just words. They are just feelings. And this is one of the great frustrations I have about the church today, generally in the West, is that our society operates on the basis that feelings actually are reality. However you feel today is real, regardless of the fact you felt polar opposite to that yesterday. And so however you feel should be enacted as reality today. And it's crept into the church over the years. And so in churches all over the place, we're telling particularly our young people and our children, that how you feel is all important. And if you feel close to God, then that's just the best, isn't it? Everyone wants to feel close to God. So much of our worship music in the modern era or the postmodern era is about making you feel great. It's about you know, inspirational sounding words and buoyant music to lift you and make you feel amazing, which is great until you walk out to your car and the feeling evaporates and you realize that actually you, you have all sorts of questions about your faith that haven't been addressed and you don't know where you're going and you don't know what you're doing, but you felt for an hour amazing. This is endemic to the church. And I'm not just saying that modern worship music's rubbish. Not all of it is rubbish. Some of it's really amazing. But it's part of the church culture today to make you feel good. But the problem is feelings are fickle and they're going to change 15 times before the end of the service. Satan speaks to us through our feelings. He leads us through our feelings. And Paul is saying here, actually, that doesn't really matter how you feel. It's what's true. If God has justified you, you have nothing to fear. There is no one who can condemn. Jesus Christ is the one who has died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who's interceding for us. His work is constantly being applied to our lives so that as God looks at us, he first sees Jesus. And after he's seen Jesus, if we are in him, nothing else really matters. We stand before God justified. So Paul says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? No one. Nothing. We reckon on the provision that Christ has made for us and the protection that he has given us. He gives us his grace, his work of atonement. Jesus has paid it all. All to him I owe, we sing. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And we don't underestimate then the power we have with Christ. Paul tells us in all these things we are more than conquerors through Christ, through him who loved us. He said that there is nothing that can be a, a true barrier to us, not tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. I mean, everything in your life being torn away that has worldly value, Paul's talking about here. Imagine everything good in your life being ripped away from you in one horrible moment. Paul says, will that separate you from from God and Jesus? No, it won't. It will be horrible, 
It will be a deeply unpleasant experience. It may bring us to what we feel is the very edge of sanity itself, and yet it still won't separate you from the love of Jesus. We're being slaughtered every day. People die every single day, and as the church is persecuted, Christians particularly are being singled out for Jesus' sake and are being slaughtered all day as if they're nothing. And Paul says, just because your life is worth nothing in the eyes of the government, in the eyes of the um, the Jewish authorities, it doesn't matter. It's your worth in the eyes of Jesus, and he died for you. And he will not allow you to be separated from him. Christ's power is at work holding you, keeping you, sustaining you, equipping you, building you up. All those things that we've thought about in this uh, passage up until this point. These barriers that we see to faith are actually shown not to be barriers at all because Christ has triumphed over it all. And if we need something to help us overcome a barrier, then we will be given it. It will be supplied to us because Christ is all-powerful. There is no one that has power greater than him. There is no one that can take from him what is his. This is the way the ancient world worked, that if you went to war, so if Israel go to war with Egypt, let's imagine that Egypt win. That says to the Egyptians, not just that we, but our gods are stronger than the gods of Israel or the God of Israel. It says to the Israelites, it's not just that we have failed, our God has failed. This is why the exile in Israel's history in the Old Testament was such a huge impact on them. Because it said to them, it's not just that we are not strong enough to defend our own borders, it's that God hasn't been strong enough to defend us from the God of Babylon or the God of Assyria or the God of Egypt. And what God says to Israel in their exile is, I'm still here. And at the appointed time, I will lead you out of this land. It's what God says through Moses during the Exodus, that the the plagues that are afflicting Egypt and not afflicting Israel as they live just in, in the land bordering them in Goshen, all of those plagues attack one of the key Egyptian gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And it is God saying, even in Egypt, I'm more powerful than these gods. They don't exist. They're just whispers in the wind. so it is in the New Testament. Jesus goes anywhere. Jesus goes everywhere. There is nothing that can overpower him. So don't be afraid. Charles Hodge put it beautifully when he says this list of terrible things in verse 35, swell our victory. There are no longer impediments to us. They actively spur us on to Christ. As the things of this life are stripped away, we realize we can't place our confidence in them. They're temporary. Everything is temporary. Jesus lasts, though. These things go from being deadly and luring us away from Christ to being nothing more than a spur to greater holiness, closer union with Christ. This is the joy we have in in the Christian experience that we still go through all the same experiences that all the people in the world outside who don't know Jesus go through, and those experiences will lead those people further away from God, and yet they will provoke us to greater faithfulness. It's amazing how God's able to work in the world and in our experiences. But it's also a great encouragement to us. It's still going to be hard. But the aim is closer union with Jesus, a closer walk with him. So, in light of this, Paul says, when you feel you are being consumed, 
by the things that are going on around you as you face life and death. Look to Christ. He pairs life and death in these closing few verses. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, and all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ in Jesus our Lord. He pairs these two things together and uh, points out that as we look to Jesus, they're put into perspective. Possessing life isn't something we have to scrabble for every moment of the day. We've been given it as a gift by Jesus. Death isn't something that we should be utterly terrified of. For through death and out the other side, what we have is perfect life with Jesus for all eternity. That's Paul's point elsewhere when he says, I don't know what to do, whether I should live or whether I should die. Because if I live, I get to stay and serve the church, and that's amazing. But if I die, I get to go and be with Jesus, and that's even more amazing. But I think I can probably be of use just now, so I'll stay for a while. Paul really got this because his life was on the line almost every single day. In the death of Jesus, our death is put into completely different perspective. It becomes an entryway, as it were, to life everlasting. It ceases to fill us with fear. It's what motivates David's words in Psalm 23, that there is green pasture beyond the valley of the shadow of death. David's led sheep through dark valleys all his life. He knows. It always comes to an end when we have God as our shepherd who goes before us because no good shepherd leads his sheep into a pit and just leaves them there. Death separates us from the pleasures and enjoyments of this life. It separates us from the loved ones who will grieve our loss and it's not a small and a light thing and I don't mean to make light of it but we can be fooled into fearing it as Christians. John Piper says death isn't a separation, it's a homecoming. Despite everything it takes from us, it's not a sign God has deserted us. Paul tells us in the face of Jesus' victory that death and life have been changed and neither one should tell us that God's abandoned us. It should assure us that God is always with us. So when you feel consumed with fear, we look to Christ. When you feel powerless, we look to Christ. He continues that it's not just death and life, it's angels and rulers and things present and things to come and powers that threaten to defeat us. And that's perhaps more of a pressing worry for us today than life and death. We, we look at our government and we're fearful about what our government's going to do in the future. We've seen things like the hate crime bill and we hear the language that is used about what we are allowed to do in this society, in this world. And we become fearful that we're going to be persecuted for what we believe or that we're going to be thrown in jail for what we believe or we're going to have our children taken away because we're not willing to teach them the current popular uh, theory about who they are as human beings. We're fearful. But Paul says, what can these things do? What can an angel, what can an earthly ruler What can something present in your day or some unknown thing that's going to come in the future do? What can your political leaders do to you? Well, they can imprison you, but you still belong to Jesus. They can take away all the stuff that you have. Well, you still have Jesus. They can kill you. Then you get to be with Jesus. Again, it's what Paul causes the Roman authorities to struggle with when he's in jail. 
If you don't stop preaching the gospel, we're going to throw you in jail while Paul preaches to all the, um, the guards and they hear the gospel and some of them are saved. Well, then we're going to kill you. Well, I get to go and be with Jesus. Well, we'll let you go. Then I'm just going to go on preaching the gospel. You can't stop Paul. Because he doesn't care about life. He cares about God. And so in his powerlessness, the power of God is made more abundantly known. It doesn't matter what we're told or what we think today. There is none more powerful than Jesus. And no one can take you away from him. So when we feel powerless, we look to Christ. When we feel worried, we look to Christ. One of the greatest fears, as we've touched on, is the fear of the unknown. It's things present, things to come. Height, or depth, or anything else in all creation. We, we worry about what we don't know because we don't know what it will bring. And yet, Paul says, none of those things ultimately matter because what you do know is that Jesus goes with you through it all. He's not going to abandon you because you fail. He's not going to leave you by the side of the road because like a a, a fickle child, he's seen a new, more sparkly toy over here and he's going to go and chase that thing and leave the old broken one uh, by the way. That's not how Jesus works. Jesus is eternal. He was before the beginning, is now, and will be on into eternity. He can see and know all things. And if he died for you, then why would he ever abandon you? Because he knew exactly what you were like before he died for you. He knew how bad it would get. He knew how much pain you would experience. He knew how often you would fail him. And he still died for you. He called you to himself. And he equipped you. Nothing in the future will defeat you because all things are known to the Lord. And when he saved Christ, who was slain from before the foundation of the world, he was aware of all that would come. He has ensured victory. And nothing will ever surprise him. Ever. It would be a lovely experience, wouldn't it? Never be surprised by anything unpleasant. Well, that's God's reality. So when we're worried about the future, we look to Christ. doesn't mean we're going to know what the future will hold, but we know who will go with us into the future and help us face all things. And ultimately, when we feel overwhelmed, we look to Christ. Paul concludes that it doesn't matter how big the problem might be, anything in all creation. There's all sorts of stuff that we're told to be fearful of at the moment, isn't there? We're polluting the world. The whole world's going to end a week on Tuesday because of pollution and global warming. So we should be fearful. We should be fearful about what's happening in China because China's just going to take over the world. We should be fearful. Economically, there's going to be another economic collapse. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. We should be really fearful. And if that wasn't bad enough, some giant asteroid might just fly out of space and smash into the planet and burn the whole thing to a crisp. We should be absolutely terrified every minute of every day. Have a great week. This is Bertrand Russell's problem. Bertrand Russell and the mathematicians of his day were genuinely fearful, not that planes were going to fall out of the sky. They didn't believe that that mathematics was just going to disintegrate because they were worried about some paradoxical problems that he had raised. Bertrand Russell was fearful about what tomorrow would bring and had to find meaning in something, has to find purpose in something. If tomorrow he dies, his life had to have done, been, gone somewhere. One plus one equals two seems like a pretty good place to start. He did other things in his life. 
But all of it is to bring meaning and purpose and certainty in the face of an uncertain, fear-filled world. Because Bertrand Russell, like every other human being that has ever lived, feels overwhelmed all the time. What can you do to stop a giant asteroid destroying the planet? Nothing. Not a thing. What can we do to stop the weather radically changing tomorrow and completely re-altering the, the whole face of the world? Nothing. Nothing we can do about these things. Can we stop a war breaking out between two other nations? Probably not. Can't do anything about these things. But Paul says, so? Why are you afraid? You're in Christ. Even if you get flattened by a very personalized asteroid that falls out of space and just crushes you. What difference does that make? You're in Jesus. You have him forever. Doesn't matter. (laughs) So when we're faced with things that are just too big for us to cope with, too big for us to even get our head around to understand, we're reminded that we're not in control of anything in our lives. Nothing. But God is. It's something I was reminded of this week where somebody said, for all the science that we have, they can never tell you why. They can tell you how. They can never tell you why. Why did it rain here and not there? Well, we can tell you how the rain formed and so on, but we can't tell you the reason behind it all. It's just the way things have worked. There's no purpose behind it. It's just a result of naturalistic laws being played out. No scientist can tell you really the fundamental why behind anything. They can tell you the how. Paul says, here's the why, because God chooses. It's God's desire. And if it's God's desire, then it has meaning and purpose and value, and so do you. So don't be afraid, because God isn't going to do something mean and horrible to you because he's fed up with you. He's going to walk with you every day of your life, and when you die, he will walk with you through that too. And out the other side, and on into eternity. There is nothing better than knowing that. We can face uncertain days because of this truth. In this life, we'll be separated from all sorts of things that are very dear to us. We will struggle with all sorts of problems. We will experience innumerable joys and blessings. The way that we do so must be grounded in this confidence. Otherwise, we have nothing. It's just happenstance. It's just chance, and tomorrow chance will bring us misery instead of joy lack instead of blessing. But if our confidence is in Christ, we can face anything as his people and not be overwhelmed, not be overcome, not be broken down, not be defeated, but be victorious in the face of all things. Not as the world ranks victory, but as God does, which is the most significant thing of all. So let's pray together that we would face this week in light of these truths that give us confidence. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks for your word. Lord, we thank you that in a few verses, Paul unpacks so much. Lord, he grounds our whole confidence in any event that we might face in this life this coming week. So that he doesn't need to say in specific circumstances, this is what you should do. He's able to say in every circumstance, this is what you should do, so that no matter how good and joy-filled or how difficult and painful your life may be in that moment, you will be able to walk in victory in Jesus, confident. So, Lord God, send us out to be confident people, not to have fake, cheery grins plastered over our faces if we enjoy suffering and difficulty when it comes, 
but, Lord, to be able to do so with a calmness and a patience, with an ability to endure well, for in the end, not even the most terrible loss will take Christ away from us. So, Lord God, we give you thanks for your goodness. You are truly steadfast. Those whom you have called to yourself, you will never forsake. And we ask that you would give us the confidence of knowing that deeply within the core of who we are this coming week, that we face anything in light of your presence with us in Jesus. Lord, we ask that not just for ourselves, but for our whole fellowship. We ask that for our families at home. We ask that, Lord, for those who do not yet know you, that they may be turned to you and know this confidence also. Lord, we ask it all in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, to draw these things together, we're going to stand as a family, and we're going to be led by our worship team as they lead us in singing of the faith that we have in Christ that makes sense of all that we experience. Let's stand together and sing. By faith, we see the hand of God.